Welcome back to Get Lost in Great Film from View Entertainment. I'm James King. One of the things I love most about cinema is its ability to transport you to hours of uninterrupted bliss, to escape to another world and to lose yourself in truly cinematic moments. In this series, I ask film buffs from either side of the screen about their five favourite film moments. In each episode, we'll be immersing ourselves in a new genre. Love, music, action, drama, cinematography and comedy. This time, we're getting lost in cinematography with actor Danny Mays. Danny, lovely to speak to you. And you, James. Thanks for having me on. Uh, It's a pleasure. We're talking about cinematography today. Uh, I looked it up in the dictionary. It's one of those things I think we all have an idea of, but I thought, what's the actual dictionary definition? It's a little bit dry, to be honest. I'm hoping we can inject some passion into it. Um, The art of photography and camera work in filmmaking. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's sort of... painting by numbers, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So we'll we'll give it a little bit of flair, hopefully, over the next few minutes. (laughs) Why did you want to talk about cinematography today, Danny? What does it mean to you? Well, I mean, you know, I've been acting for uh, 20 years now, so I've had my fair share of experiences with cinematographers. They're such a key element, aren't they, to the filming process? I mean, they are arguably just as important as the director. Do you know what I mean? Because they are at the forefront of fully realising what the vision of the film or the TV show is going to be. So it's... um, yeah, and you always have such sort of close relationships with them and great... I mean, I've had some great camaraderie and experiences with cinematographers over the years. Um, yeah, they're just a key component and, and vital to the filming process. And do you think that you have a particular interest in it and you you know, you know want to communicate more with them than perhaps other actors do? Does, do you see that some actors do it more than others? Um, I think over the years you kind of, in terms of your acting technique, you get to you have an awareness of the camera. I mean, you know, when you first start out, you're completely green to it. I mean, I always remember a quote from the brilliant actress, Alison Stedman. She said, you should always treat the camera as your best friend, i.e. have an awareness of where that is in, in the scene and where what position it's actually filming you from and treat it as a friend. Like it's just kind of eavesdropping into your conversation. Because you do, without a shadow of a doubt, as a, as a screen actor, have to have that technique. You have to have an awareness of how big the lens is, how close in the camera is actually coming. Um, I haven't gone down the Michael Caine don't blink route and all that sort of stuff. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> oh, that what's that? Of, you know, like he says, if you've been close up, don't blink and don't. I mean, there's. I mean, to a, a certain extent, there's sort of truth in that. I mean, if you are in close up, you're not going to be moving your head around. You know, you're going to try and internalize. Yeah all the emotions that the character's going through. But um, I think instinctively over the years, you learn how to sort of hone those techniques. And I mean, you know, in, in comparison to stage acting, screen acting is in a way a completely different craft, I would say. We're going to start off with a movie from 2007. Michael Caine's never going to ring me back now, is he? I know. <laughs> they, you're off his Christmas card list. Yeah. I love him, um, really. 
<laughs> we're going to start with a movie from 2007 that you've chosen. It's actually one that you're in as well. So you've got first-hand knowledge of what it was like filming yeah. this remarkable scene. Uh, Seamus McGarvey was the director of photography. Peter Robertson was the camera operator. Joe Wright was the director. This is Atonement, and we're talking about... Wow, I mean, this is a hell of a scene. I remember watching this for the first time. The Dunkirk scene, which is just mind-blowing. Yeah, I can't even imagine how how it was to film it and how long it took to film it. Perhaps you can fill in the details. Yeah, I could talk about this scene till the cows come home, really. It was, um, in the script, it was three pages of stage direction. It's when myself, Nonzo Alonzier and James McAvoy's character, we finally land in Dunkirk. And as I said in the script, it was literally like three pages of stage direction. It was loads of detail of, of various soldiers doing you know lots of different things on the beach and I can't remember when it was but I think Joe must have called a meeting with us and said listen we're going to do this all in one take on the Steadicam and our kind of jaws <laughs> hit the floor um because wow so there's no that, indication of that in the script no not at all it was all all the vision of, of the you know the masterful Joe Wright I mean up until that point we were it was like a sort of three-week road movie atonement really um because they'd shot the the earlier stuff in the house and all the nursing section with Romola. So, and then we sort of looked at him and we went, oh, okay. And we filmed it on Red Car Beach and they completely transformed the whole of the seafront into uh, Dunkirk. And we had a whole day's rehearsal and there were over a thousand extras. And basically it was a whole day's rehearsal. And within those thousands of extras, they were, separate ADs with their own particular department or amount of extras that they were dealing with. And everyone was working out doing their own separate things. And um, it was a whole day of rehearsal where we just had to mark out where we would, it was like a dance, James. That's the only way I could Mm. describe it. And with that, you know, it's very difficult to (laughs) track on one actor and then literally bleed onto the other one. And it was kind of like a whole day of getting it right and working with the Steadicam operator, Peter. And um, we then came to the day of filming and Joe took us into this huge hangar where all of the extras were congregated and it was just a sea of faces all in Second World War uniform. And I think you can see it on the DVD extras and there's a look on my face where I'm just absolutely flabbergasted that all these (laughs) people had turned up. Um, and we were about to, you know, embark on this amazing uh, adventure together, really. And so we rehearsed again in the day. And then I think it was late afternoon where we finally turned over and the sun was beginning to set. And um, it was a huge amount of pressure because you didn't want to drop the ball. <clears throat> and I think we got through the first two takes and um, maybe they didn't work so well. Then we did a third take We did a fourth take. We got to the fifth take and Peter, the operator, he was literally jumping on moving cars. He was carrying this heavy Steadicam over sand. And I think it got to about the fifth take and he kind of was just beyond exhausted and collapsed. And then Joe Wright was pulling his hair out and thinking, oh my God, we haven't got it. And there was all a lot of panic. But then I think they used the third take in the movie. And... um, It's just an audacious piece of filmmaking. And it was, I mean, to experience that, to have walked through it, I mean, everywhere you looked, 360 degrees, 
there was something going off. There was people hanging off the Ferris wheel. There were horses being shot. Uh, they were soldiers running into the sea. Um, it's a breathtaking piece of filmmaking and it travels all the way through the scene and then we walk up onto the pier. I nearly get knocked out by a gun that someone was throwing around. and So there are kind of like happy accidents in there, but we feel like we just made it by the skin of our teeth and, of course, they go up onto the pier and then it turns around and you kind of see everything that they've experienced and walked through. It was amazing, yeah. It was probably the most incredible sort of scene I've ever shot. And and it actually evokes um, a tremendous amount of emotion for that period of time as well and that event, you know, particularly when it gets round the bandstand and all the soldiers are singing carols and wishing to get uh, evacuated. So, um, yeah, I guess it was a marriage of amazing filmmaking and story, really, and it's an amazing moment in the film. Yeah, because one of the things that that rather dry dictionary definition left out was that I think cinematography is about enhancing the story. It's about complementing the story. And actually, when you think about that moment in the film and Dunkirk and what that represented in the Second World War, how yeah. do you film that? I mean, you know, really, this is the only way you can film it to even begin to get an idea of the chaos that was going on, of the, of the surreal atmosphere of the whole situation. I think that's what it depicts brilliantly and captures is is the utter chaos of that Dunkirk evacuation. I mean, there's even a, a someone on the very top of the um, ship, which is uh, on the beach, where this the soldier just screaming, "I want to go home! I want to go home!" But I mean, it's just the genius of Joe Wright and how audacious he was in choosing to film it like that. I mean, I think he'd attempted long Steadicam shots in the past. I know there's one in. Pride and Prejudice, but I always remember Joe that day on on Atonement feeling, and I I was looking at him, and he had this sort of white, sort it was like a sort of Peaky Blinders peak cap and this big red overcoat, keep warm coat, and he looked absolutely calm. I mean, it was you know I thought he was so impressive that day, and he was taking it all in his stride. Just very impressive person to be around. And I think the uh, I know that Peter Robertson, who, who who was operating the camera, who was on the back of you know back of sort of rickshaws and sometimes walking around with the cam, he did win a big industry award for that very moment, which is absolutely right. But I think actually we, we've kind of talked about that. I think that scene a lot more recently in the wake of 1917. Actually, I know another film that you were involved with yes. because of that idea of the single shot. And the st- use of the Steadicam, I think people have gone back to Atonement and gone, wow, actually, I mean, 1917 is amazing, but this was 13 years ago that Joe Wright did yeah, that. Yeah, I've ticked off both world wars, and I? It's, if it's a world war and a Steadicam, <laughs> they, ring, they ring Danny Mays. <laughs> but I mean, equally, 1917 had its own challenges as well. You know, that was, um, I was only really on that for three days. But what's similar about both those films is the remarkable amount of effort that goes, you know, into it from the crew and the operators. I mean, with 1917, when we got into the, um, the bunker with Colin Firth's character, I mean, the camera was just tracking in and they had to just completely lift the, the, the roof of the set off and um, carry on. And I mean, I mean, the whole one take thing in 1917 was kind of like mind blowing because it was all spliced together and edited together. And that was the gimmick. And lots of people were drawn to that film because it was the one shot movie. But uh, for me personally, when I watched that film back, it was absolutely seamless. I couldn't tell you where the joins were at all in that. It was beyond impressive. 
And again, that I mean, that was the great Roger Deakins, who was, um, he reminded me of another member of the Rolling Stones. He had this sort of aura <laughs> about him. He was, he was just like super cool on set. And um, he's obviously worked with Sam Mendes a lot. So they, they were, they're a tremendous team. And we will talk a bit more about Sam Mendes actually later on in the programme because I know we've got another film of his to discuss. But we move on to um, a director I guess some people might have heard of, Martin Scorsese. Who's that then? And (laughs) Yeah, some fella, some Italian-American fella. Uh, This is from 1980 and this is Raging Bull. Like I said at the top of the programme, you've got some caucus here. You have chosen some absolute classics. But they're all Um, quite brutal, aren't they? All of my list of five films are um, not for the faint-hearted. Beautiful brutal I think in the case of Raging Bull Michael Chapman was the Oscar nominated director of photography on this and I I suppose a lot of people think about the fight scenes when they think about Raging Bull don't they yeah I mean that's the thing that definitely drew me to it I mean I I'm a huge De Niro and Scorsese fan and people say oh what's their best film what's your favorite film of theirs and without hesitation I always say Raging Bull because of those amazing fight scenes because when I sat down and watched it for the first time, what hits you for six is the sheer sort of theatricality in the cinematography. And so, um, I mean, they were using tricks like fog in the ring and particularly towards the back end of the film where Jake LaMotta's, you know, he's losing it a bit and his wife's left him and he's struggling big time in his sort of own sort of personal life and then to give that sense of oppression and heat within the ring they had fog and the most amazing technique that I remember is it the sort of the camera sort of tracks in and they used to put flames underneath the lens to give it that ripple effect which is you know when you're when you actually think of the sort of tricks of the trade that you can actually use to evoke an atmosphere in a room I mean that's the real sort of art form of cinematography and um each one of those fight scenes in Raging Bull is completely and, and utterly unique. There's an amazing shot when Jake LaMotta wins the heavyweight title for the first time. And again, that's like a long steady cam shot where they you follow all of the group from the uh, changing room all the way down into the ring. It's just an amazing piece of filmmaking. But um, yeah, I mean, I never. it's one of those films I just never, ever, ever tire of watching. It's a, it's a masterpiece. And, and with those fight scenes, they're obviously realistic in the fact that y- you can hear the punches, the sound is amazing in it, yeah. and you know you see the blood, the sweat, um, but then at the same time, they're sort of hyper-real, aren't they? They are heightened, they're incredibly cinematic. It's not like you know watching a, a boxing match on pay-per-view on Sky TV. You know, there, there's, some, there's something extra about oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you have to acknowledge the amazing editing from Thelma Schumacher as well, because... I mean, there's there's a succession of fights with Sugar Ray Robinson, isn't there? And there's that... I mean, it's like he's crucified, I mean, on the ropes where he beckons him on and he's sort of all punched out. And there's a tirade of punches which land on De Niro and it cuts the blood on the leg to... Uh, I mean, it's, it's a <laughs> blood going everywhere, blood going into the crowd. And like you say, the sound on it is amazing because it's like... I remember it's like a whirlwind sound or an incoming train or something like that again it just taps into how imaginative and theatrical i think scorsese can be as a director i mean they're 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 wonderful films to watch 
Yeah, operatic, I guess, isn't it? And uh, of course, there's operatic music playing as well. There is, the and there's that. I mean, it's pos- possibly my favourite opening to any film when you see Jake LaMotta dancing around in the ring, and you, he's you've got the three ring ropes, and it's like he's encased in a prison, if you like. So, I mean, that film. In, from an acting point of view as well, I mean, you get into the whole method acting with De Niro for him to sort of get so much into shape and Jake LaMotta himself saying he could have actually been a brilliant middleweight uh, boxer to then stopping filming and then going all around Europe in eating pastas and whatever and pizzas and just <laughs> piling on all that weight. You kind of think, wow, an actor's dedication to his craft. I mean, that was a big thing for me when I was um, growing up. He was a big inspiration to me, yeah. Yeah, fifty pounds he put on he? For, to play the the, the the overweight Jake. Yeah, um, and, and obviously, you know, I, I don't know if he was pressurised to do that or whether it was his own decision. But if you if a role came along that required that, or to lose weight, in fact, I've, well, would, I, that I have actually, yeah, I've lost. I did a film years ago called Rehab with Antonia Bird, the late great Antonia Bird. It was a BBC Two film when I was playing a heroin addict in that who came out of prison and went to a, a, a rehab facility. And uh, yeah, I, went, I did my De Niro on it and, and I did a, <laughs> I did a um, cabbage soup diet, James, which I don't recommend. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's just put it out there. I mean... Were you married at this point? No, I was in a relationship. I did have a girlfriend. I think that's probably why it ended. Uh, um, but I've done that and I've also... I mean, I kind of got a bit obsessed with the losing the weight with that one. But I also did a movie called Byzantium with Neil Jordan, which is a really sort of underrated film, actually. I really like that movie. And I was Noel, playing a character called Noel, who was the owner of the Hotel Byzantium. And I met um, Neil Jordan at Groucho Club and we got on brilliantly. And he said, and then I got a call saying, he really wants you for the role, Danny, but you're just too thin. And you need to just uh, pile on some pounds for him because he lived on takeaways. So I was on holiday down in Cornwall and I think I ordered double cream teas and I didn't look back. So um, I won't be doing that again. That was not that was not the nicest experience because it was very difficult to then lose it because your metabolism slows down as you get older. So but I mean, whenever I see actors transform their bodies like that, it's I it is a real dedication to their craft, isn't it? I'm I'm thinking of people like, you know, Tom Hardy and uh Christian Bale Bale. does it a lot, doesn't he? Wow, I mean, um, he can really morph into different characters, can't he? Yeah, and it's dedication from your family as well, or those around you, because you know, you're you're uh, when you're not eating or you're overeating, you know, that affects your emotions so much as well, doesn't it? Yeah, and you know, it's sort of way way in advance to when you actually come to the set and make the actual film. So um, it's a like it's a lifestyle change, isn't it? More than anything else. Yeah, who'd be an actor, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Michael Caine's never done that, has he? Well, don't. (laughs) I won't get a movie with Uh, Michael Caine now, will I? <laughs> we're, we're moving on to um, one of Martin Scorsese's contemporaries, one of his friends, uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Some say Coppola, we'll go with Coppola. Um, and this is from 1979. The director of photography uh, was an Oscar winner for this film, which I think is absolutely deserved. Vittorio Storaro. Apocalypse Now, another one of the greats on your list. Um, another cheery a, a troubled number. shoot. Another cheery number, the light-hearted comedy, Apocalypse Now. <laughs> and a troubled shoot as well. I mean, this isn't just an intense film to watch, but it was an incredibly intense film to make, by, by all accounts. 
Yeah, I mean, if anyone hasn't seen the accompanying documentary with it, Heart of Darkness, um, I wholeheartedly recommend that. I mean, in a way, that documentary is just as impressive and crazy as the actual film itself. I think that documentary opens with Francis Ford Coppola at Cannes. Am I right in saying this? Where it's the it's a shot from the press conference, and he says this movie is not about Vietnam. It is Vietnam. Or something along those lines. I might be misquoting him. Yeah. And you're completely... No, that's what he said. Yeah, you're completely transfixed by that quote straight away. <laughs> um, but I instinctively think of the Ride of the Valkyries, the, the helicopter attack yeah. towards the beginning of the film. And the thing that's so impressive about the cinematography and that, and that sort of set piece is the scale of it. Because it's pretty much like a full-blown American helicopter attack in Vietnam. And the choice of shots and the sheer sort of magnitude and scale of it is is literally beyond impressive um, and just depicts the horror of war like no other sort of sequence in a war film I can remember, actually. But you're right. It was. It was. There was um, lots of uh, shenanigans behind the scenes, weren't they? With lots of the um, actors in it. One thinks of um, Dennis Hopper. There's an amazing thing that pops up on Twitter the other day, which I retweeted, and it was this. I'm going away from the cinematography here, James, but it's too good to not talk about. <laughs> um, where Francis Ford Coppola is is trying to persuade. It's clear that Dennis Hopper, whatever whatever he'd taken, he was high as a kite, and he hadn't actually learned his lines. And uh, he says, no, I, but I need you to be as, I need you to learn the lines to be instinctive with it, Dennis. And he says, no, I, I'm not going to learn the lines. You know what I mean? I'll just see what happens when it, when it pops into my head. So it was a real clash of sort of techniques and um, personalities. But uh, it's a very funny thing to look at. Yeah. And in a way, you know, because the film is so much about destruction. I mean, it's in there in the title for starters, but it, even the, the shots the, the, and, and in the beautiful cinematography, it's, it's just this gorgeous, in a way, destruction of the forests and the explosions. You know, it's stunning to look at. In a way, I don't want that film to have been an easy film to make <laughs> because, because it is about intensity and it is about destruction i want the actual behind the scenes shoot to be that bad because it just surely it, it adds to the whole myth of the movie doesn't it yeah and the thing about that is you just could never make a film like that now i mean yeah. imagine the health and safety on apocalypse <laughs> now it would be a complete nightmare yeah. and i mean that that sort of period of american independent filmmaking was i mean it was a time of i mean the films that were produced you know um People were able. But Raging Bull was around the same time. Raging Bull, you know, you think of the taxi drivers and the Apocalypse Nows and all those sort of things where you were just able to sort of have creative freedom and not have, you know, necessarily a studio breathing down your neck. I think, you know, in all films you want to have that freedom in, in order to realise what the vision is and create your own film. I think it's when, you know, the studios are on your back and, you know, the edit itself is taken away from you. I mean, I've had experiences on films where directors have turned around to me and said, in the end, I, it just wasn't my film, Danny, and this got cut and that got dropped and you sort of feel sort of crestfallen when that happens. 
But, I mean, Coppola just had a dogged determination to create the film that he wanted to make. And the set pieces in it and the cinematography are absolutely breathtaking. I mean, one also thinks of the all of the sequences with Marlon Brando, who, who obviously turned up to set and was, I think, paid the most amount of money for a cameo that anyone had done at that point. But he was sort of overweight, wasn't he? And so from a cinematic point of view, from a photography point of view, they had the idea of filming him in pretty much like darkness. So he was coming in and out of the shadows, which works brilliantly. I just keep thinking of the horror, the horror, that moment. I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms of a cameo performance and the way that that shot, it's just so atmospheric and the crescendo to that film with the music of the doors. I said to you earlier, James, I'm counting the years when I can actually finally sit my son down to watch it. He's only 14 at the moment, so he's got a few years in him left yet. Yeah, I think the it's one of those situations, and this doesn't happen all the time, but where there was chaos behind the scenes, it was probably a nightmare to work on. The shoot was well over a year out in the Philippines. Wow, was it over you a know, year? But at the end of the day, through sheer determination and talent of editors, cinematographer, director, all the people working on it, they created something amazing. And it's quite an optimistic thing like that, isn't it? To think that it can be an awful experience yeah, and it can be a chaotic experience. But the magic of movies is you can still actually finish with something that's beautiful. And you really cannot underestimate the relationship between the director of photography and the director. I mean, obviously, with the actors, it's key, but those two people on set, they have to be on the same page. They have to have a, a shared vision because I've, I have, ex I'm not a lot, but I have experienced times on sets where that hasn't been the case. And when that relationship breaks down, it can be very tricky because it just causes a huge amount of tension on set, whether that be a director of photography overstepping the mark and attempting to, you know, direct the actors themselves. I've had that experience, which is never a good thing. But yeah, you're right. I mean, every component on a film set needs to pull together to realise what the actual vision is. You know, I'm not going to list those uh, films for you. <laughs> <laughs> what are they, Danny? <laughs> we go from something overblown and epic to something much more intimate and low budget. Uh, a British film from the late 90s, 1997, uh, Nil by Mouth. Definitely don't show your 14-year-old son this one. No. Um, and uh, the director of photography on this, a guy called Ron Fortunato, who's actually been working on the TV show Ray Donovan recently with Eddie Marsden. That's the last thing he's been doing. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I, I didn't know the name. For America. Exactly, yeah. Um, so tell us why you've chosen this. This was directorial debut of Gary Oldman, wasn't it? It was, and, in, and the only film that Gary Oldman has actually ever directed, he's not done it since, which I think is a tragedy. Because, do you, do you um, know why? I've no idea why. No, no, no. I mean, I, um, I mean, Neil by Mouth hit me like a train when I first sat down to watch it. And the reason why, I mean your viewers might think it's an odd sort of film in a way to pick in terms of cinematography. But I always remember a shot in Nil by Mouth and it's with Edna Dore, the, the grandmother character in it. It's a brutal film with two of the most incredible perform. Well, it's packed full of amazing performances. One thinks of Ray Winston and, 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 and Kathy Burke who won best actress in Cannes and the brilliant Charlie Creed Miles. 
it's a brutal film of alcohol abuse and domestic abuse. And I mean, I remember seeing it the first time at the cinema and the sequence at the very beginning where it's a packed pub and Ray Winston's character is attempting to order a huge round of drinks. <laughs> and it's the way that he's ordering the drinks. You think, I really don't want to get on the one- wrong side of that character. <laughs> and it's packed full of really, you know, high, intense, raging emotion like that. But the sequence with Edna Dor- Dor and, um when she is with the young grand- her granddaughter and she releases this red balloon. Do you remember that bit in the film? Yeah, they yeah, write yeah, a yeah, message she writes on the balloon. Name on it. C-H-E-L-L-E. That's it. And they just uh, release this balloon and the camera follows it out of this sink estate. And um, it was a real moment of poignancy and absolute beauty in that film. I found that moment absolutely heartbreaking. It felt like it was the only sort of moment like that in that film. And then literally from that scene, it you hear Ray's character, you know, kicking down a door again and you're sort of back in into the nightmare of it all. I mean, I would put it out there as Neil by Mouth is probably one of the greatest ever British films ever made. I think it's an exceptional piece of work. And did you work with Edna? Because I know she was in a Mike Lee film that you were in, All or Nothing. No, 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 I'd never... Um, oh, she was in All or Nothing, wasn't she? Yes. Um, I never... Did I met... I must have met her maybe at the cast and crew. We certainly didn't have any... Um, scenes together on that i mean she was such an amazing screen presence wasn't she yeah i'm trying to remember who she played in all on nothing now i'm going back nearly 20 years now so um and people will probably remember her as um mo butcher in eastenders as well yeah yeah and gary's sister layla is in the neil by mouth as well so um yeah there's an eastenders connection yeah, but there's, a, I mean, in terms of the cinematography for that film, it's raw and I remember it being very handheld. And I mean, it, the, the the social realism aspect of that film is brilliantly captured in the cinematography. Um, we will finish with um, a Sam Mendes movie. We mentioned him earlier in relation to 1917. Uh, this was his second movie, Road to Perdition, in 2002. So he had a huge success with American Beauty, won a lot of Oscars for it. And this was his follow-up with Tom Hanks. Uh, Conrad Hall, I think it's probably his last credit, actually, as a d- yeah. director of photography. Yeah, because he, when he won the Oscar for it, it was a posthumous Oscar. Um, so uh, this is Tom Hanks at his, at his most bleak, really, isn't it? This is a, definitely a different kind of role for Hanks. Yeah, I've gone for the most bleakest performance of Tom Hanks. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Sam Mendes' career as opposed to maybe American Beauty. But um, I always think it's the most kind of underrated of Sam's films. And I think the cinematography in it is absolutely jaw-dropping as well. I always love that sequence when... I mean, it's a film about fathers and sons, isn't it? Which is always a subject which, you know, from an emotional standpoint, really sort of gets me. And um yeah. It was um, the moment when the two of them, because they're obviously on the run, aren't they? And uh, it's when they first arrive in Chicago. There's an amazing, I mean, it's sort of trick photography where the camera goes all the way around the car that they're arriving in and then they land in, in Chicago. But it's the sort of cut from that. And it's just a shot of the two of them walking along the street in a sea of people going to work in um Chicago with all the hats. I mean, there are so many breathtaking shots in that film. One thinks of the very end as well. 
And it was great to actually, I mean, we briefly spoke about 1917 when we were on that film, the nature of the way that that was shot, you know, with the one take, we, there was a lot of hanging around on Salisbury Plain, you know, waiting for the sun to go in or for it to stop raining because, you know, it just had to be overcast for continuity purposes. So there was a, there was a, you know, some opportunity to hang out on set, literally just hang out with Sam Mendes. And I, and I just picked his brain a bit about road expedition and, and what it was like to work on that and what it meant to him. And we spoke, spoke a lot about Paul Newman. One also thinks of that amazingly photographed sequence when Paul Newman is gunned down in that movie in the rain, when he says, I'm so glad it's you. I mean, that was felt like a, such a poignant, it was like the last sort of amazing piece of acting, wasn't it, from Paul Newman, from yeah. an amazing career that yeah. he had. But Sam, I, mean, I think he did say to me, he found it his sort of most underrated piece of work, and I sort of tend to agree with him. Yeah, it must be frustrating for a filmmaker and also for actors as well, if you're involved in a movie that, you know, you put your heart and soul into, it's over several months or years, and then it, it's so much is is relying on the time it comes out, what it does in the first couple of weeks at the box office, so many different factors. And that movie can just be derailed and you're going to have to be very patient and wait for it to find its audience over the years. I think it's definitely done. I mean, it wasn't as a commercial hit as American Beauty, was it? Yeah, no, no, it wasn't. It was, it was a hit, and it did well. Yeah, but um, you know, like even like Sam Mendes, you know, said to you, it's. I think it's compared to some of the other things he's done. Yeah, it's just been a little bit forgotten. And I think actually, it's something that that deserves to be celebrated more. I'd even say the same for Atonement. Actually, you know, it's a film that people know, and it did well. But at the same time, I think we should place it on a on a higher rung than it actually is. Yeah, it also boasts my favourite Jude Law. Performance performance because he's the um, assassin isn't he on the trail of, of Tom yeah. Hanks and I think I mean again he's that so he's a he's a he's a morbid um, crime scene photographer isn't he <laughs> yeah I don't know yeah. what Comrade Hall must have made of that but I love the way that they tinker with that and Jude is playing completely against type I think it's an amazing performance he delivers in that and it's a spectacular and moving film to watch isn't it yeah, based on a graphic novel. And I think that actually there are shots that are, you know, taken directly from the graphic novel. Oh, okay. Um, which, you know, gives it so much atmosphere. Um, thank you so much for your choices. So let's just run through them again. We had Road to Perdition. We had Nil by Mouth. This is the Danny Mays comedy hour. <laughs> <laughs> I should have put Stir Crazy in there or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Road to Perdition, Nil by Mouth, Apocalypse Now, uh, Raging Bull and Atonement. Um, and, you know, I, I think generally speaking on this podcast, you know, we're trying to talk about getting lost in movies and what and that sensation of being in the cinema and you just forget your surroundings and you forget what's going on all around you because you are so immersed yeah. in the movie. And I think these choices absolutely sum those up. Certainly when I was re-watching Road to Perdition, you know, that moment when he's going into Chicago, you are just totally... You're seeing it through the child's point of view, really, aren't yeah. you? And you are just totally there with him and totally immersed in that moment, which is really what this is all about. So thank you so much for choosing that. James, an absolute pleasure. Who knew I knew so much about cinematography? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. 
Now, if you got lost in this episode, let us know at View Entertainment on all the usual social platforms. The hashtag is Get Lost in Great Stories. And don't forget, immersing ourselves in great film at the cinema isn't just fun. Research shows it's actually good for our well-being too. So, View has partnered with Medi Cinema. Medi Cinema build and run cinemas in hospitals to help improve the lives of patients. If you'd like to find out more or support their incredible work, head over to the podcast show notes for further details. Until next week, it's goodbye for now from me, James King, and all at View Entertainment. Thank you.